You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 22. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am your host, Mark Holthy, and I'm coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode, I am super excited to have one of my good friends and colleagues, Betsy Kane, who is an immigration lawyer practicing in our nation's capital, Ottawa, join me to discuss a topic that any HR manager or anyone associated with the foreign worker program in Canada will want to listen to. We are going to talk about employer compliance. And, you know, when we do these podcasts, I like to kind of control the conversation and guide it through the interjection of questions and really help to to create sort of a structure to it. But I'll tell you, Betsy is awesome. I could have just stood back out of the way and just let her talk. In fact, she needs to have her own podcast. It was awesome. It was a fantastic interview. Um, you know, I don't need to to extol any of Betsy's virtues here in this pre-introduction, but she is she is so knowledgeable and she just went to town in terms of sharing insight and knowledge that will help anyone who is facing any of these employer compliance reviews or any government inspections with respect to their interaction with the Temporary Foreign Worker Program in Canada. So if you are employers, large multinationals, internationals, local companies, mom and pop shops, you had better listen to this podcast. The insight that Betsy gives is phenomenal. And after you listen to it, go hire her if you're running into problems with the ECR process. She is super knowledgeable. She is a tenacious advocate for her clients and uh, someone I'm proud to call a friend. Now, within this podcast uh, today, this episode, Betsy shares some really awesome insight. In fact, she was even involved with one of the more higher profile cases that you know found an employer on uh, the the employer naughty list, I guess, if you will. But she shares some excellent insight on how to deal with challenging situations when maybe you're even wrongfully accused by the government. Um, if you're an employer in terms of how you are interacting with the temporary foreign worker program, but enough of me blithering on here, as I always do, I want to jump right into this podcast, right into this interview with Betsy Kane as soon as I can here so that you can listen to these awesome, awesome, uh, nuggets of, of wisdom that she shares related to the employer compliance process. And it's interesting because when you think about that topic, it sounds pretty darn dry. Uh-uh. Don't assume that's the case. If you're just tuning in just shortly to see what this is about, it is totally worth listening to. Betsy's stories and her her, her background and the insight she gives is, is really fun. She makes it fun. She's so passionate. All right, let's jump to that uh, interview with Betsy Kane. Well, hello. We are back here with... Um, my special guest, Betsy Kane. 
a partner in the law firm of uh, Capel Kane Immigration Lawyers in our nation's capital of Ottawa, Ontario. Welcome, Betsy. Thanks for having me, Mark. This is exciting. <laughs> this is awesome. I have been wanting to get Betsy on for a long time, and uh, our schedules kept uh, going in different directions, but I've finally been able to pin her down, and so we're delighted to have you here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast today. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Now, I want to give a little bit of an introduction for the listeners so they can learn a little bit more about who you are and what you do and and why I just had to get you on the podcast. Um uh, Capel Kane is the only law firm in Ottawa which boasts two legal professionals certified by the Law Society of Upper Canada as specialists in citizenship and immigration law. So just just at the get-go, everyone needs to understand that um, there is a difference between someone who is certified as a specialist and someone that is a dabbler. And uh, Betsy and her partner are definitely uh, certified specialists, but even aside from that title, you know, Betsy's reputation always precedes her and the work that she does um, has been recognized all over the place. She's been practicing for 22 years and, you know, uh, Betsy has has confessed to me that her strengths lie in offering corporate immigration representation to employers and international employees. But I know that she's got expertise in a whole wide variety of, of, of areas related to Canadian immigration. Um the government of Canada, as uh, I think most of us have been very keenly aware, have been constantly reforming this temporary foreign worker program. And because of that, lawyers like Betsy have had an opportunity to gain some pretty significant experience in uh, in advising um, our clients regarding corporate immigration compliance matters, including employer compliance reviews and suspensions of labor market opinions and work permits. And this is one of the areas that uh, I wanted to get Betsy on to uh, to talk about because it's right in her wheelhouse. This is something that she has been involved with on a number of different um, levels. And uh, so employers that are faced with ECRs and, and other immigration-related investigations, I can tell you that Betsy is someone that I would want on my side representing my interests. So... I, I don't mean to over, you know, over, over plug you here, Betsy, but this is legitimate. So because it's my podcast, I can say whatever I want. So I think you're awesome. So thank you. Well, I hope I can do your podcast justice. <laughs> I know you will. So, um, Betsy is, uh, like I said, certified as a specialist, um, with uh, Canadian citizenship and immigration law. Uh, she's also a regular speaker at our national CBA conference, at regional um, Canadian Bar Association events, and just a whole host of other things. And she's consistently sought after subject matter experts for the Cana various Canadian media outlets across the country. Um, more recently, she's been nominated by her peers for inclusion in the Best Lawyers Canada 2015 and 16 editions, Who's Who Legal, the Corporate Immigration uh, editions for 2015 and 2016, and also Lexpert uh, for the last two years as one of Canada's leading practitioners in the area of Canadian immigration law. And each of these accolades is most 100% uh, um, uh, warranted and applicable for, for Betsy. So, um, you know, even aside from all of these accolades and things like that, uh, the thing that impresses me the most, Betsy, is your willingness to give back to to our, you know, our community, our, our, our industry. Um, you're such uh, an amazing mentor. And even for me, I know over the years as I've run into issues, you've always been so helpful and willing to, uh, to help us younger practitioners with, you know, not as much experience. And really, when you think about immigration law, experience is everything. 
you know, with things changing so quickly and uh, the internal policies of immigration, especially ESDC, are just such a mystery. It's sometimes yeah. the only thing you have to rely on is is the experience, right? Yeah, yesterday's experience is sometimes not relevant today, as we all know. But thank you for that. <laughs> I do my best to share uh, because I remember the days when manuals were not public and information was jealously guarded by members of our bar. And it was a very difficult time to practice. And so I remember going to more senior lawyers asking for assistance. And for those who did share, I was forever grateful. Yeah. Well, I know that there's many of, uh, many of us lawyers within the immigration bar that have benefited from your, uh, from your mentoring. And, and so, uh, that is much appreciated. Now, um, I want to shift gears now and just give a little bit of a lead into the topic that we're going to cover today in our podcast. And uh, one of the things I wanted to emphasize and just touch on right away is that in this whole world of employer compliance, you have worked with a number of employers who've had to go through that ugly, nasty process and have had just a remarkable you know, rate of, of success in navigating that process. And in fact, you represented one of those high profile cases where uh, one of the Canadian employers was placed on ESDC's little blacklist and you were successful in having them removed from that blacklist. So that is something that definitely we are going to touch on um, as we get into this podcast. And I know that our listeners are going to be very curious to hear about that. Um, but when we start off our podcast, the very first question I ask all of my guests, how in the world did you get into immigration? Well, it was kind of a funny situation. I articled with an insurance litigation firm and was completely bored. And one day at the insurance litigation firm, a lady had walked in off the street and was looking for information on sponsoring, I guess, a niece or a nephew. And it kind of intrigued me, but the firm, you know, wasn't interested in doing that. And so um, immigration kind of interests me because there's so many different types of people that you meet and it's never a dull moment. And so when I got called to the bar here in Ottawa, um, there weren't a lot of jobs available. There was a downsizing in the government. Um, and so I got what they call a term position with the government of Canada in um, citizenship and immigration at national headquarters. And I loved it. I was working at that time on refugee appeals, uh, looking at cases that had been issued by the IRB and determining whether uh, CIC at that time was going to appeal them. And it was just fast-paced and the cases changed and I kind of just fell into it and um, unfortunately a couple of years later they had big cuts in 1994 and my position was eliminated so I uh, took my immigration act and rented an office with my husband and it's all history from there. <laughs> That's awesome. So you actually worked on the inside as counsel, as, as internal counsel. Well, it wasn't really internal counsel. At that time, they had a position which they called an appeals officer, ah. which is kind of like in a hearings officer. Yes. But as you know, many people uh, who work for CIC and CBSA are uh, legally trained. So it wasn't, in fact, a DOJ position. But I sure learned the law. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. What a perfect uh, foundation to then launch a private practice. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a time in Ottawa where... Um, the high technology community was just uh, starting to uh, flourish and we just happened to be at the right place at the right time and, uh, you know, did some refugee work, but 
I didn't find it the most satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really uh, enjoyed like tapping into what was happening in the Ottawa business community and the technology community. And it just, you know, it just happened. We just connected with uh, different lawyers who work in the business and technology community, and they didn't know anything about immigration, and I didn't know anything about business. So uh, there you go. They sent us the immigration work, and from there on in, we uh, we did what we had to do to uh, create a, a practice, and it turned into a very specialized practice, and now we pretty much only do corporate immigration law. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. And you know, that pattern, I've seen that repeated with many of us practitioners within, within our bar. And, uh, I know one of the reasons that I got into immigration and I probably say this too much on the podcast cause everybody, uh, they're probably tired of hearing it, but you know, immigration is an area where you can genuinely make a difference in someone's life. And when all is said and done, um, they're genuinely appreciative of what you do for them. And, uh, so that was yeah, one of the rewarding aspects. Yeah, it's definitely very rewarding. But as you know, Mark, stakes are high. There's <laughs> yes. a lot. There's a lot at stake. Uh, people's livelihoods and family unification and uh, business operations are affected. And so there's this. Um, there's an expectation that that everything you do must be perfect. And in fact, last yesterday there was an article in the Globe and Mail about why lawyers leave the practice and they were talking about the billable hour. And it was completely wrong. The, the reason people leave the practice, because it's so stressful, and especially in this area, because there's no room for any error. You know what that is? I'm so glad you said that. It's it's almost refreshing to hear someone verbalize what's been rolling around in my mind, you know, for the, for the past few years. But you're 100% right. Um, you know, what do we do? People pay us to take away their stress so they don't have to be stressed. <laughs> and, and I talk with my wife about this all the time. And, and I say to her, look, you know, the, when I started immigration, it was, it was predictable. You know, the officers on the other side were often quite collegial and there was an opportunity to have some discussions and there was always a solution. I could always fix my client's problems. But now like you said, one little mistake can mean the difference between someone realizing their dream of becoming a permanent resident and having to go home. And with, you know, the, some of these new programs, and I know we're kind of drifting a little bit outside of employer compliance, but you know, when you think about express entry and this one touch policy, the government has, it can be absolutely ruthless. And as yeah, counsel, we see, yeah, yeah. We see a lot of that. It, it's true. It's, it's, you know, it used to be, like you say, a facilitative process. And I think now so many of the, uh, so much of what we do is uh, litigious in our sense of bordering on litigious. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And that's a great segue for employer compliance. <laughs> Indeed, it is. Yeah. So why don't we start off with you giving us a little bit of a background on this whole crazy area of employer compliance. And and really, I guess, you know, any HR managers that are listening to the podcast, why it's something they need to pay attention to? Well, the government of Canada believes that um, there were many employers that were abusing temporary foreign workers that were coming into Canada. And so they launched this huge initiative to instill a, a new employer compliance regime to ensure that employers were treating foreign workers correctly and that they weren't underpaying them or you know, uh, treating them uh, in a manner which was not consistent with uh, how they were treating Canadian employees. And so 
though there had been many cases of um, of you know poor treatment or exploitation of low skilled workers, the government felt it was necessary to bring in an across the board compliance regime for both low skilled and high skilled workers, and so now employers of all stripes are required to essentially. Um, keep a full and accurate record of everything from the time they chose to recruit from for a position up until the time the foreign worker leaves uh, their employ or uh, transitions into permanent residence. Everything from the changes in their offer of employment to any uh, changes in their wages, their duties, um, their benefits, uh, locations of employment, all this has to be micromanaged at an HR level because if there's anything in that you do uh, subsequent to getting a foreign worker on site and if the government believes you somehow transgress the terms of the approval, uh, you can be faced with um, an assessment of being non-compliant and potentially face um, administrative monetary penalties, blacklisting. That's the that's the, uh, the, the the threat that they make under the regime. In reality, there are very few employers who have been blacklisted to date, and none since 2014. And as far as I know, not one employer in Canada has received an administrative monetary penalty to date. But perhaps you have more information than I do at West. Well, you know, what's interesting, <clears throat> I just finished a series of blog posts on my own personal view as to what should happen with the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, and really it was more focused towards the low-skill program. But over the years, as I've seen these regulatory provisions continue to be ramped up and, and ratcheted up and increased and more threats and threats, to me, it's almost like a barking dog. You know, you, you go to the door, you knock on the door, the dog barks, <laughs> and uh, maybe you open the door and the dog barks louder, but eventually you realize that the dog isn't going to bite. And so you get the situation where you've got all of these convoluted regulatory provisions, all of these hoops that employers who are good employers have to go through in order to not only get the, the temporary foreign worker, but also retain them uh, and then apply to extend all of these regulatory requirements that are put in place. Um, are, are just like a barking dog. That's the only way I can describe it. That's and exactly what it is. It's basically a regime that is a deterrent. But, that, but what we can see is that the government is not doing anything. They, they, of course, they request documentation. They request information. They request the same information multiple times. They request it in different language. Um, and you're significant, you know, devoting significant skills sorry, you know, person hours, people, resources, lawyers, office administrative staff to, you know, hashing out this documentary evidence, pulling out timesheets, verifying that the foreign worker's taxi from the airport was paid by you and not by him. <laughs> and that, for what? For yeah. what? Because nothing's going to happen at the end of the day. And so these exercises are exercises, in my mind, of paper chasing, but at the end of the day, there is no penalty for the average employer, who uh, most of which are fully compliant. And if there is any transgression, it's so mired that it's really not worth government resources. Does it make a difference if, for example, there was a dollar taken off an employee's paycheck to uh, contribute to the office birthday cake fund? That's a case where I had, that's a situation where I had to justify. You know, are these you, are not. Oh my big goodness! Are you serious? Canada. Are you serious? They oh really God, inquired into that. 
we had to prove that the foreign worker had signed a voluntary um, consent to allow for his $1 to come off each paycheck so that they had the office party or office birthday pay cake fund so that everybody in the office, whenever they had a birthday, could buy a $10 lousy birthday cake from Costco or, or Walmart and put a candle in it so everybody had a piece of cake on their birthday. And we needed uh, we needed written confirmation from the foreign worker to prove that he, in fact, authorized the employer to make that $1 deduction. Now, is the integrity of, of the foreign worker program enhanced in any way by involving any party, whether it's an employee, a foreign worker, or counsel on an issue such as that? Oh my goodness. You know, and I'll point out here that the object of this podcast is not to have a bash session on ESDC in any way, but the reality is these types of things are actually happening. And so I think, I think about, I think about the resources and government, not only, you know, uh, the time that these officers spend, but the money that's being put into these types of investigations. When in all honesty, where's the problem? It's, you know, 90% of the time it's on the low end. And like, like you indicated, when was the last time you heard an employer being added onto the naughty list? You know, I, it, it hasn't changed since December of 2014, I think was the last employer that was added on. And since that time, nothing. I think it's, it's, it's just, it's just a tool as, as I said, as a deterrent. You know, most of my employers that are going through the compliance review, they provide the documentation, the officer on the other side sees it. You know, if there's a minor transgression, they paid, uh, you know, $19.99 instead of $20 an hour because of a, you know, a payroll glitch or something like that, you know, they justify it. It's nothing major. Most employers are compliant. I've only really dealt with an employer who was really not compliant once, and that was... um, the one who we mentioned was on the blacklist. Now, um, yeah, can you can you just give us a little bit of a ba- obviously a little bit of background on that and tell us kind of what happened? Well, without breaching solicitor client privilege, what I can tell you that was is that that particular client was used as a um, an example by the former government and by former minister Jason Kenney to demonstrate that the government was acting and looking to crack down on unscrupulous and exploitative employers. And so what happened in that case is that um, Jason Kenney um, basically blacklisted the employer first and then notified them thereafter. And, and Jason Kenney, just to clarify for those who are maybe new into the game, he was the prior minister so in the, within the conservative government. Right. So... Um, so this employer ended up on the blacklist, um, unbeknownst to him. Uh, we are not sure how he got on the blacklist. We suspect it may have been a disgruntled former employer, employee, rather, or um, it could have been media reports. We're not 100% sure. The employer, in this case, um, litigated the matter. And after litigation, um, also made extensive submissions for removal off from the backlist. And when I say extensive, I'm talking like 50-page submissions with investigative information from all levels of government. Um, and after going back and forth, back and forth for some time, uh, the government um, quietly removed them from the blacklist um, with, without providing a rationale. Uh, really, um, and as far as I see it, is that that they were removed from the blacklist is a victory. 
Um, so it was a very unusual case. It was a very high profile case. It was extremely stressful. We had a number of lawyers involved, both litigators and myself, who were basically on the, uh, on the ground dealing with Service Canada versus those who were litigating some of the decisions. And it was quite the learning experience. I think it was one of the first cases uh, that was uh, brought uh, within the media and, you know, brought, uh, basically, it was a learning experience as far as I could see from CIC and ESDC's point of view. I learned a lot about the how the system works and, and as a result, um, I'm a very cautious and precautionary practitioner now because I can see the power of the government in using the blacklist and using the powers which are extensive under the legislation. And so um, my objective is always to just uh, help the ESDC inspectors and investigators do their job and prove to, my, to, prove to them that my employers are fully compliant because um, knowing now what the, the, that what the powers are and how, uh, how deep and how extensive they can um, they can essentially rake the employers over the coals in terms of you know digging deep into information about their business, their personal lives, their real estate holdings, their tax obligations, their uh, WSIB filings. I mean, the the extent of information that can be uh, requisitioned for an employer who is suspected of being non-compliant is so um, wide-reaching that. Um, I always like to stay on the more conservative side and make sure that my my uh, my clients uh, are fully compliant and provide as much information to the investigators so that they can move on to their more pressing and uh, deserving files. Absolutely. And I know for a fact, without even asking you, that any companies that you act for, you make darn sure that all of their documents are in place well in advance of ever being contacted for an ECR. But with that being said, what I want to ask you, maybe if you could share, shed a little bit of light, is there some employers out there that are listening to this podcast that have never gone through it? So I think what you've explained here has sufficiently scared them and or freaked them out enough to cause them to realize, holy crap, we need to do something with this. We need to make sure that we are ready in case something like this happens. So can you shed a little light on you know, what it's like for an employer, you know, kind of from start to finish, like the process flow of this? Well, the process flow starts at the time that you uh, determine, uh, after doing your recruitment for a position, um, that the best candidate for the position is a foreign worker. So you keep all your advertisements, um, you keep all your memos to file, all your... Um, Conf, you know, all your records of all the applications that you received and whether those applications were from Canadians or non-Canadians, if you were able to delineate that, uh, the rationale for hiring the foreign worker, um, any receipts that you, um, you know, have from advertising on Monster or, you know, using a, a headhunter. So all the recruitment information uh, must be kept. Then the offer of employment then if the offer of employment has been uh, negotiated or changed, all that information needs to be maintained if the job description has changed. So basically, it's a monitoring exercise from the time that you um, choose to recruit a position right up until uh, the time that the foreign worker either leaves the company or transitions from a temporary foreign worker to a permanent resident. So it's a very um, labor-intensive uh, process for an HR individual because 
the file needs so much more attention than a non-foreign worker case because, you know, you hire someone, you put them in the job, you give them an offer, you give them a bonus, you give them a raise, you change their duties, you give them a promotion, everybody's happy. But with the, uh, with the foreign worker program, any change, even if it's beneficial to the foreign worker, can find you offside. So, um, it's really important to document every change, every every minutia, really, uh, with regard to the foreign worker, because it could come back to bite you. So all the milestones in the in, in the hiring and 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 working life of the foreign worker uh, need to be carefully uh, charted. Okay, so here's the question: So how long do you have to keep this documentation? Well, the regulations specify that you must keep the documentation for six years from the time you hire the foreign worker. Okay, so, really, so, so if it's six years, and um, I don't know if it's been your experience, but there is some turnover within HR uh, personnel within a, within a company. So, for sure. so you can imagine if, if you've got individuals who are trying to manage this, this process and keep documentation, how critical it is to make sure that it's in a place where people can actually find it. Absolutely. And as counsel, what I do as a practice is, first of all, I keep everything electronically and I try to keep everything paper-wise in case my computer crashes. And I save everything as a PDF as what was sent to Service Canada. I also keep all um, all documentation, all emails, all um, currency conversions that were used at the time to make the application if I'm dealing with a foreign employer. I try to keep everything, and in fact, I have instituted a new policy at our office where we're actually keeping LMIA files for 10 years uh, just because sometimes, as you know, the recruitment process can start two years before the foreign worker even starts in the position, particularly in large institutional uh, employers yes. like hospitals and academic institutions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are union requirements to advertise well in advance of positions being, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Filled. So I just say, I just took a round number of 10 and says, you know what? I don't want to be responsible for, uh, for not having this information on file. So it is quite labor intensive. Um, and, but most companies are actually pretty good and they do have, you know, records of when somebody took a holiday and, you know, when the foreign worker, you know, got a, a promotion or his pay was increased. But yeah, the, the documentary requirements are quite heavy. And when it comes to the inspection, I mean, the type of information, as I said, was like referencing in a funny manner earlier in the podcast, but I mean, I have had cases where a taxi chit has been requested because the employer was uh, going to pay for, uh, you know, in Canada transportation, and they wanted to make sure, because the foreign said foreign workers stated in the LMIA that they were going to pay for ground transportation in Canada. And so we had to find the taxi chits. Well, we had the taxi chits. Unbelievable. The taxi chit is issued by the taxi company. And so we had to prove that the employer purchased the taxi chip. Oh, I can so only I, imagine the cost, like know, from a resource not, standpoint. This is just. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is. It is labor intensive. And you always have to go back to what was actually stated by the employer. What was it? Did they did they offer all this, you know, as part of the LMIA and, and the LMIA application form? Because sometimes what I'm seeing uh, particularly um, in 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 cases where it's not warranted, requests for information that are no, not really pertinent to the offer of employment 
the foreign worker, or are beyond the actual term of the employment. So the foreign worker can be long gone, and they're still asking for information with regard to the foreign worker. Hmm. So you have to be able to, instead of get you know, flustered by these requests, look at them, analyze them, and say, okay, is this documentation that pertains to the foreign worker and, their, and the terms of their offer? That's that's an excellent point because I think in the vast majority of cases where employers are unrepresented, well, even I guess in, in many cases where, where they are represented by maybe dabbling counsel, the reality is they just assume that whatever is asked for, they absolutely have to provide. But what you're saying is that sometimes an officer can actually overreach. Absolutely. Now, the regulations specify that an employer must fully cooperate. Absolutely. But what we also have to remember is this is a, uh, a, a basically a compliance regime, a regime where an employer could be subject to hefty penalties, have their reputation and their name besmirched because of a possible blacklisting, um, and it would cost the employer quite a bit of money to engage the legal counsel to deal with this case, this type of investigation or any allegation of non-compliance. So you have to understand that these officers are working in a law enforcement capacity. They're not your friend, even though they may be friendly on the other end of the line. And it's really, really important to set the parameters and make sure you're only giving what is necessary under law in terms of the offer of employment that is under the LMIA, as opposed to um, perhaps a foreign worker was earlier working under a working holiday program work permit or a spousal work permit. Um, you have to really define the parameters or you could be uh, searching and photocopying for months, if not up to 12 months. I have one case where we're, we're into month 13 on, a, on an inspection. Wow. Okay, so let's... Let's take just a, a short step back and just follow this process flow through. So how does an employer know when an ECR has been triggered? Obviously, I'm hoping this is not the case where they find their name on the blacklist and that's how they know they're under investigation. I'm assuming that was a rarity. But for the, average, so for yeah. the average employer, how does this process start and, well, and what happens? There's two, there's two ways that this, the process starts. One, if a foreign worker has made an application for, for a labor market opinion and has previously done so, you will get notification from Service Canada that your application for a pending LMIA has been put on hold because they are going to ensure that, you're, you have, that the employer has been compliant with previous LMIAs. So what happens is that new application for the foreign worker that you have just filed and most likely urgent has now been placed on hold indeterminately, indefinitely, until they can satisfy themselves that you have complied with previous LMIAs. So if you had a foreign worker two years ago, they want to see all the documentation, your application, uh, you'll be contacted by telephone by an officer who will explain that you have been selected for an employer compliance review and that uh, they will be sending you a letter. And what the most interesting part of this process of the employer compliance review is that there is no deadline, there is no timeline by which this, this compliance review must be completed. So if you have a pending application for a new CEO or a new uh, engineer or whatever it is, you're essentially hijacked by this employer compliance review. And as I said, they're not in any rush to complete their compliance review and only when they finish 
and they're satisfied that you've provided all information and justifications, will your application go back into the queue for processing? So we're not here to talk about this aspect, but another issue for many employers is how do we get a foreign worker in when we've been hijacked by the ECR process? And so that's for another discussion. Yeah. The other way in which um, the, uh, the compliance regime arises is if you've had a foreign worker on site, uh, you've made an application, you've got an LMIA, maybe it was just a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was three years ago, and you get a call from someone who just says, you have been randomly selected for an employer compliance review, where they call it an inspection, or randomly selected for an audit. Um, and go, okay, that's great. Well, you've attested to this when you said you were going to agree to it when you applied for your LMIA three years ago, so here you go. And then you get the lawyer, you get the letter explaining what they want. And what's really interesting is you get the first letter, but what really happens is you're getting, you get the first letter, you give them the basic information. Of course, they're not satisfied, so you get a second letter, and most likely you get a third letter. And by the time you get the fourth or fifth letter, you're kind of tired. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. And months could pass by. Um, so and, and the and the LMIA that you had previously submitted is still in limbo. If if you are subject to an employer compliance review, where okay. they look that which is triggered only when you make a new LMIA application, ah, an inspection is only is a random inspection. So I'll give you an example okay. of something that really kind of I got a chuckle out of it. So anyway, employer. Employer gets a new LMIA for, for a foreign worker who was previously here on an IEC work permit, the international experience class. The LMIA was issued like around Christmas, December 2015. Because of the Christmas holidays, the foreign worker doesn't come till February. So we, the employer gets called in February. The foreign worker like literally got there two weeks ago. We have been randomly selected for an inspection. Well, they said, that's great, but we just, the guy just got here two weeks ago. Do you really want to inspect <laughs> one payroll record? Yes, we do. And so here we go. And so uh, we're now what? We're now June 8th. And uh, this has been going on since February. The employer actually does need foreign workers. They're expanding a huge manufacturing plant in Ontario. And they have been, uh, they can't do it. We've got to look for another alternative for a work permit for their foreign workers so that they can ramp up manufacturing in the food processing industry and sell their products in the North American market. But uh, that one has been put on hold due to the integrity services branch's verification that the foreign worker was actually paid his $1,149.63 in the first two weeks of his employment. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can, I can see and I'm sure the listeners can see the absurdity to some of these things for sure. So we tried to actually get the employer, the, the, we tried to get uh, the ISB, the Integrity Services branch, to maybe look at someone else. They said, do you really want to do this inspection on a one, on a one paycheck? Well, yes, we do. Okay. Hmm, wow. and then I, uh, similarly, I had another case where um, another employer um, had just gone through an inspection. Um, they literally just finished an, an inspection, and they got another request for a random inspection three months later. And we just said, I'm sorry, like we've just, we've given you what we've given you. We've just gone through the employer inspection. We just filed an LOIA. We've attested from here to, you know, God knows where. We're going to do everything and everything. But do we really need to be abused and, and go through this a process again? And they recanted. They, 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 they went back to their managers and realized that maybe this employer had been 
unduly burdened by the compliance <laughs> process. Oh, that's oh man, that's wonderful. I I hadn't heard that uh, that they actually were willing to back off in those circumstances. So I guess there is some semblance of reasonableness in 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 the process to some degree. I wouldn't use that word, Mark, but okay. we, we try. We, you got a brief reprieve. I try where I can because these, you know, putting the resources, you know, the manpower to, to furnishing this documentation is so intensive yeah. that it is a very expensive process for an employer to go through. Um, and I would say in 85% of the cases I've dealt with, if not 95, it's a, it's a exercise in futility. Wow. There is, you know, does it, you know, a veterinary clinic is not going to underpay their veterinarian to service their clients. A large Canadian corporation, maybe it is even a government of Canada um, crown corporation, is not going to abuse their foreign workers and disadvantage them in any way. In fact, one of the very very first employer compliance letters that I got, it was several years ago when they were just testing out the situation. They said they wanted to prove that such and such a person, a very high profile artist in Canada, was paid the wages as per his contract. And my responding letter says, if he hadn't been paid the wages, he would have quit a long time ago. Love bets. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> anyway, I never heard from him again. So in those were the old days. It doesn't work like that now. No. But uh, wow. Yeah, so, this is this is an area, you know, I, I just wanted to be a quiet immigration lawyer on a sleepy, you know, sleepy street in Ottawa where no one would find me, do my work. <laughs> uh, but it's it's becoming such a uh, an aggressive area yeah. because you, you know, you the letters, these boilerplate letters that come, they scare the hell out of the employer. Well, if you do not provide this information by June 15th, your name of your company could be found on the blacklist. Yeah. I know. Right. Yeah, I know. And, you know, these employers, like, and sophisticated employers are scared when they read these letters. So, yes, you know, we've got to get this information and um, to them. And it's, it, it's, very, it's a very um, upsetting process, especially for the blue chip employers. They don't understand why they've been randomly selected. They don't know, understand why they're being investigated as if they had, you know, yes. had some kind of illegal uh, body house in the basement of their of, of their manufacturing facility. They don't know what they're looking for. They really don't know. It's like, no, we do not have, you know, an underground operation of uh, medical marijuana plants underneath our high tech company. And uh, no, we do not abuse our foreign workers. Um you know, they are allowed a lunch break. In fact, they don't even have to come in from nine to five. They're, their employment agreement clearly states as long as they put in the time and get the work done, all's good. Yes. So it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very way, different way of, 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 of treating uh, Canadian businesses and uh, professionals. Okay. Okay. So, so with all of this being said, then the natural question is, <coughs> You know, do you have any tips for employers to try to the extent that's maybe even possible streamline or, or make this go as quickly or as expedited as possible? Do you have any tips for employers in navigating this process so that they can actually get in and out and at least cut down that time where they're in limbo? The best thing to do is keep really well well documented 
records, make sure that, you know, um, you know, you, you chart when the foreign worker is hired, but get a copy of their work permit on file, verify when you get the LMIA that it's in fact in the right occupation, that it's on the right location of employment. Um, if there's any changes in the foreign worker's job description or wages that you chart when that took place, as long as you're keeping really good records, and it's not necessarily you, it may be the company has keeps good records, you can pretty much amass the information. Where it gets a little sticky is where the investigators start asking questions of the foreign worker. Like many, many of my cases, they want the foreign worker to give a written attestation that they got the company car, even though the company cars and the employment agreement, or a written attestation that they were in fact given two days off to attend a continuing education program, which was in their employment agreement. Um, so it's little things like this that can be quite annoying, and there's nothing you can really plan for. The best thing is give them all the information you might hear they ask for. Make sure you're only giving the information they ask for and not more. If you feel that um, you're being... Um, unduly targeted or asked for information, which is really the beyond the scope of verifying that the wages, the working conditions, and the occupation um, are what you said they would be at the outset, then I would say engage counsel. Um, one of the things that I'm noticing is that um, most of the officers are, are really great in dealing with counsel. They understand it. But um, when you have to, you know, put the letter of the law in front of them, sometimes A, they don't understand, or B, um, they get their backup. So, you know, you have to be very careful that you give what you want, but that you're not um, giving too much that it, it'll come back to bite you. Gotcha. Okay, so let's, now that our employers all know that they need to document everything, you know, they're going to start putting their, their house in order before the ECR comes. Right. Let's say there's a circumstance where they realize, uh-oh, we have a situation here. There's potential non-compliance here that we, you know, innocently found ourselves offside. What do you do? Do you, and this is kind of the leading question here, Betsy, do you voluntary disclo voluntarily disclose this to ESDC or do you cross your fingers and, and hope an, EC, uh, you know, an ECR doesn't come? Well, I think that's a really good question, Mark, and I think it really depends on the lawyer you're consulting. For me, Miss Conservative, I would say absolutely do a voluntary disclosure. There's now a process as of December 15th where a company can make voluntary disclosure if there's been noncompliance, and then the, and then uh, ESDC will determine whether they will do a full investigation. Not that they wouldn't, but anyway, that's what their website says. Um, and determine whether there were any justifications and whether there was rectification by the company and whether there were any other uh, non-compliant issues that perhaps you didn't fully disclose. So you can do a voluntary compliance. It has to be thorough. Um, many, many, I, as I said, I've always taken the view that uh, coming forth is always in the best interest of the employers. But I do know that there are counsel out there that are saying to their employers, you found a problem, as long as you rectify it internally, you don't really need to tell anybody. So I think that's a that's an issue for you know the type of lawyer you're engaging and, and whether you as a client are prepared uh, to uh, to make voluntary disclosure and, and, and open yourself up uh, to, to an audit, um, or whether you're 
prepare to just if rectify it in you know in house and uh, hope that you don't get audited or that the issue never arises. Um, so it really depends on you know what you're prepared to do as a client and how you instruct your lawyer um, or what your lawyer advises you if they are uh, you know one of those who are prepared to um, to advise you to rectify and not disclose and that's um, you know that's an issue of the of of I guess how. Um, how generous a lawyer is in terms of interpreting the legislative obligations of the employer. For me, I believe at some point the employer is going to is you know has to disclose whether it's on an LMIA application or or in a filing an offer of employment. You have to declare, declare whether you're fully compliant with provincial and federal laws. And I think to answer those questions uh, accurately, um, you know you should be fully uh, you should offer the disclosure. If, if required, but I know that other lawyers out there say as long as I've rectified it and I've made amends internally, if I underpaid the guy uh, $100 a week by accident and I just cut him a check, a lump sum, then I'm fully compliant and I don't have to tell anybody. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a, that's a really good question and a little, a really gray area. I know a lot of employers yeah. would prefer not to do voluntary compliance, yeah. but um and it's the interesting. Thing is, it, it, it just follows you because every time you make a new application, you have to attest that you're fully compliant. So, are you going to, if you don't do it, you're here on after um, potentially covering up something? Um, so, it's really, you know, I can't get into the details because it's, it's all case specific. Absolutely. Yep. But, um, uh, I'm in favor of uh, wiping the slate clean, especially if there's such a turnover in HR. The new HR manager doesn't know what the old HR manager knew and certainly doesn't know. Uh, they only know as much as they know, so they can only attest based on the knowledge. So, um, you know, keeping your uh, your corporate records clean are in the best interest of the company. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, a whole other discussion, which, you know, once we actually get some information on these administrative monetary penalties and how they're going to be applied... Um, you know, I'll definitely have to get you back on to get your take on all of those, but that's another layer that we can add into this because theoretically, if a company is willing to come forward and be proactive in their voluntary disclosure, it can affect the severity of that administra administrative monetary penalty, but we won't get into that. That's a, that's a topic for a separate podcast. Um, you know, we've we, we've been on here for a little bit longer than we intended, but I didn't want to stop you because the information that you've shared is awesome. There's nothing better than to get some practical uh, experience and to relay, um, you know, just just the problems and and uh, and challenges that are are not readily visible to the public when they're when they're going in, into this process. They have no idea what they're getting into, and so I want to. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that. You know, as an employer, what you also need to be aware is you do have an obligation to cooperate. But sometimes, you know, you may get to the end of your um, your patience with cooperation. <laughs> and I was just going through the regulations last night, and it says there's actually a provision where you can justify no long, you know, your decision to no longer cooperate. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you are end of your cooperation rope. <laughs> there is a there is a uh, there is a justification, and I would assume that the justification is we've given you everything possible in our uh, in our in our possession to justify uh, or to explain our compliance. And if this is no longer satisfying you, I don't know what else I can do. And so, 
we've given you what you have. So if you've had poor record keeping or you don't have that taxi chit um, to prove that you paid for it or, you know, you can say, I've given you everything we have. I'm sorry that I didn't keep all these records. Please understand that we've, we, we're cooperating. We've done everything possible. Another thing that just um, came to my attention not too recently is I had, I'm representing an employer who is basically at the end of his rope and has given everything. And we called the member of parliament and we mm. said, you know, can we, is it possible you could help us through this? Because, you know, we've been providing documentation to this inspector for one year and we have provided everything and everything that we've provided shows 100% compliance and he will not go away. And the MP's officer, the MP assistant, who so obviously very, uh, very familiar with the employer compliance regime, which means, leads me to think that this is not the first employer that has complained. He said, would you like to ask the minister to cease and desist? <laughs> I said, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and so we wrote a letter to the minister for Employment and Skills Development Canada asking them to please review all disclosure that has been made in the last year. And could they please terminate this inspection? Because we have nothing further to offer. Hmm. And apparently, we've given that letter, and I've been told by the MP's office that it's under the minister's advisement, and hopefully we'll hear something soon. And huh. uh, if that one works, I want to come back on your podcast and talk, that would talk be, about it. That would be wonderful, because that's an avenue that uh, has, I've never heard of before, that that's even a possibility in these circumstances. And, and, you know, with this whole discussion we've had here, we are dealing with good employers, and right. the the whole uh, employer compliance regime was was put in place to track down and you know apprehend the bad employers and so you think about all of these resources that have been wasted with all of this you know these uh, really um, ineffective or maybe not well placed efforts Imagine what could be uh, what could be occurring if they took those resources and applied those to investigate, you know, employers that are actually in in, you know, in areas where there's high rates of of serious abuse, you know. And so, I've pondered yeah, over that a lot. I've pondered over that a lot. Well, you know, you have to ask the question: Is you know, every single week we see articles in the Globe and Mail, in the National Post, in the Windsor Star, of you know agricultural workers coming under the seasonal agricultural workers program, people who are hurt on the job, underpaid, living in poor working conditions, not given water while they're working in the fields. Where are these inspectors? Yeah. Where are they? You know, there's all these uh, NGOs, Justice for Migrants, complaining about how nannies are being, you know, abused in the households of Canadians. Yeah. No, they're they're looking for the taxi chip. They're looking why you didn't pay, why there was the dollar taken off for the birthday cake. Exactly. Now, something's not wrong. And in my opinion, this employer compliance model is a waste of taxpayers' money. We should be having the employer compliance for all employers. I mean, there's always going to be good employers that are offside. But the focus, the investigation, the resources it should be on those employers where they know there's a problem. How many? How much more uh, public information do you need when it's on the front of the Windsor Star or the Globe and Mail and all over Twitter? I mean, the information is there. They were looking for random tips. They don't need random tips. They just got to go to the public media in Canada. Yeah. So really, um, this is a waste of taxpayers' money. And in fact, my client who went to the minister said, why are you wasting my good money on this? I am a good employer. 
there are many employers around here where I think your resources can be better spent. And so employers do uh, lose their patience and are wondering um, why their good tax dollars are being used to investigate them when we all can see the cases of um, exploitation and abuse uh, in our daily newspaper. Yeah. Those are, those are excellent points, Betsy. And I, I, I agree 100% with you. Um, before we close our, our podcast here, um, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else in terms of uh, maybe one last parting thought or tip that you can leave with employers who are either preparing to go through something like this or right in the midst of it or, or just trying to get out of it? Is there, is there, you know, maybe one tip or one thing that you'd like to emphasize and leave them with uh, to, to help them navigate the process? Well, I would say uh, be pleasant with the officer on the telephone. Give them the information they want. The letters that they sent you are boilerplate letters, so don't read too much into them. They are not going to blacklist you in most cases. And if you're feeling overwhelmed or you're feeling that the exercise has gone beyond what is something that would be what would be a normal audit or a normal checking of the verification like you would have with CRA. If something's not sitting with you, then contact counsel. That's what I would say. But generally the information they're, they're, they're requesting is general you know, information that you'd have in your records. But if something isn't right, if you have an officer on the end of the line who is being maybe a little too aggressive, you don't have, as an employer, you don't have to be abused yourself. Um, and you are the one under investigation. It's a legal regime and you are entitled to counsel to navigate the process. So that's the only thing I would say. Most of the time it's going to be fine, but it can get nasty. And sometimes you're out of your league and it's, it's, it's a good idea to just rein things in if you, if you feel that things have gone a little bit outside of what appears to be a normal uh, conduct of, of just verifying the wages and working conditions and occupation of the foreign worker. Awesome. That, that's a great tip. Thank you so much, Betsy. And I really appreciate, like I said, all of the insight that you've, you've given because you can't get this anywhere else unless you've been through there, unless you've, you've, you've kind of fought that battle and you've had the experience of the best and worst you know, circumstances with these ECRs, um, you, you just would have no idea. So thank you so very, very much for the time that you've taken for the great insight. And I know that anyone who listens to this podcast is, is going to be a whole lot better off if they actually have to face one of these things, knowing, you know, some of this background information that you've provided. Now, with that being said, I know there's going to be people that are saying, oh my goodness, I'm in the midst of this. This, uh, you know, this podcast is an answer to prayers. How do I get in contact with Betsy? So how do people find you? What is the best way for them to, to reach you if they have uh, an issue, an employer, and they, they just need help? Well, they can call us uh, at our office. Our, we, our website is at uh, capelcane.com and we have an information section on our website where you can contact us. It's called contact at capelcane.com and you can put in your query and we will get back to you usually within 24 hours. Alternatively, you can give us a call. Our coordinates are on our website. You can give and, the number. Uh, you can give the number if, if people are just listening, Betsy. Yeah, it's uh, 613-230-7070. Um, but likely we like to kind of get a feel for what's happening. So if you want to email us a little bit about your situation, we'd be pleased to assist. 
Um, and you know, I didn't really want to come on the, on the show and do any bashing of ESDC either, <laughs> but what I did want to do is alert people that it's not a simple paper exercise that sometimes it can del get delved quite deeper. And, um, and you need to be mindful that at the end of the day, the government of Canada can find an employer non-compliant, uh, can impose administrative penalties, can ban the employer from using the program and can, and highly unlikely, but can list the employer on their ESDC blacklist. So there is a lot at stake. And so you shouldn't go in this in a naive fashion. Perfect. And your contact information and, uh, you know, the, the uh, website address and everything, I'll make sure that I include that um, within the show notes to this podcast. And I'll also include a link to that, uh, to that great article, that blog post that you wrote last year, which is still, still current, that has some great insight and uh, just uh, explanations as to what to expect um, when it comes to navigating this ECR process. So thanks once again, Betsy. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back again. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was awesome. Betsy was a fantastic interview. The thing that I like most about Betsy is her candor. She says it exactly like it is. And, you know, there's nothing that I can disagree with in terms of what she shared with us today. She was spot on on the current state of the employer compliance regime in Canada. I can't believe uh, that the government is wasting so much time hunting down um, these employers for, you know, uh, compliance in infractions that are so innocuous. And Betsy did a fantastic job of explaining how this all plays out, what employers can expect, and uh, how to navigate this crazy world of compliance. So I want to express my sincere appreciation to Betsy. She is, you know, she's not only an, uh, just an amazing lawyer, uh, just fantastic person right to the core and uh, someone that I'm, I, I consider it a pleasure to call a friend. So enough of, uh, of you know, pumping up Betsy. She doesn't need it. She, her, her reputation speaks for herself. But uh, she's been just a tremendous um, resource to me when it comes to employer compliance and really all matters related to business immigration. Her and her firm in Ottawa are really exceptional at what they do. And uh, she herself is one of the top immigration lawyers in the country. So if you, as an employer, running into any problems, um, you're in the midst of an investigation that's becoming a little bit nasty, you are struggling with uh, trying to stick handle around issues that are really not even issues, just because uh, uh, integrity, um, a branch officer is, is uh, being, uh, well, let's just say a little overbearing, Betsy's the one to call. So once again, the contact information for her, I'll make sure I leave that within the show notes. And uh, yeah, thank you, Betsy, for, uh, for just really providing a wonderful, wonderful interview. All right. Well, I'd like to express appreciation once again to all of you who listen to this podcast and support it. Um, it is, uh, it's overwhelming to know how many people are actually following it. And so I want to express appreciation to all of you for the time that you take to download this, to share it. Um, I encourage you to continue rating it on uh, iTunes. And if you can take the time to do that, 
it will then cause the podcast to rank just a little bit higher and make it easier for people to find really is what it's what this is all about. And when I have lawyers on like Betsy and like all of the other interviews that I've had in the past who share such you know, just unbelievable knowledge that can't be obtained anywhere else. People are paying thousands of dollars for this. Um, I want these lawyers to have an opportunity to really get their name out because they're the ones that should be showcased. So thank you so much for your, uh, for your support of the podcast. I have a continued awesome slate of lawyers that are going to be coming on and other practitioners that are going to share unbelievable insight in all aspects of this crazy Canadian uh, immigration landscape. So I wish you all the best in your efforts to navigate the crazy world of Canadian law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Here on the Canadian Immigration Party.